This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a talk with Morana-born rodeo champion Sherry Servi. She's being honored with two streets named after her. And Daily Star columnist David Layton will tell how it happened. Follow the tracks of an extinct species of giant bear. I'll talk with Mike Stark about chasing the ghost bear on the trail of America's lost super beast. And the hit TV show Reservation Dogs returns next week with a highly anticipated second season. I'll talk with one of the show's stars, Tucsonan John Proudstar. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The importance of cattle ranching in our state's history is largely responsible for the enduring popularity of rodeo. Sherry Servi, a native of Marana, is a champion in the sport of barrel racing. Servi won the world barrel racing title four times between 1995 and 2013. In 2018, she was inducted into the National Cowgirl Hall of Fame. David Layton writes the Street Smarts column for the Arizona Daily Star. Recently, he was part of an effort to pay tribute to Servi's accomplishments by naming two new streets in her honor. They will both join me next, with Sherry Servi explaining how her love for rodeo began. Uh, you know, the horses, the love of horses and, and competing, and I uh, always wanted to ride horses, and because my parents rodeoed, I, I grew up, you know, going to rodeos and watching, and, and I wanted to be a bar racer my whole life, and, you know, been very fortunate to have some good horses. Are you competitive by, by nature? Oh, I mean, I still compete, you know, at jackpots, and I still go to rodeos. I still have that desire to to try to keep getting better and and get horses to a higher level of competition. Well, David, how did Sherry Servi become known to you? So last year, um, the gentleman at uh, AF Sterling Homes, uh, which is a local developer, uh, Randy Agron, uh, John Fenton, Rob Brack, those gentlemen asked me to come up with some street names connected with Morana. Uh, they were building a small subdivision, or they're still building at this point. So because of the Street Smarts column that I write, um, they asked me to assist in coming up with some ideas. And after doing some research, there was a Morana Army Airfield out there, uh, several other people out there that I thought about. But I thought Sherry Servi kind of was probably the best representative of Morana that I could think of. Um, doing the research and stuff like that. So I kind of suggested her name um, to them. And uh, the guys over there kind of really liked it. And they went ahead and pushed it through. It took a while. So Rob Brack over there at AF Sterling Homes, he really pushed to get it through. And he finally got it through. So um, because of that, we now have a couple streets named in her honor. Uh, Barrel Racer Road and Sherry Servi Way. Um, They're located over on near... Coachline Boulevard and Silver Bell Road, uh, just south of the, I think it's an aquatic center up there. Well, Sherry, when you heard about that, what were your thoughts? I was shocked and I feel really honored. I think it's really cool that 
you know, they did that. And Marana is definitely home, always will be. And, uh, you know, I appreciate David uh, suggesting that. Well, I was going to ask you if you still feel the connection to Marana, and you said it still is home for Absolutely. you. You have family out here? Uh, yeah, my mom and dad still have a place there, and I still have a place there in Marana that, you know, come and spend the uh, winter down there. And um, my husband and I spend time in different states, but Marana will always be home. I forgot to ask, but where are you today? Where are we talking to you from? I am in Wisconsin. Uh, my parents actually have a place up here. Um, I used to summer up here when I was younger, and uh, we run yearling cattle up here for the summer. And my husband and I are still going to you know some smaller circuit rodeos up here for the summer. And it's pretty hard to beat the weather. <laughs> You're missing out on 100 degrees and like 30% humidity right now. You're really missing out on some good stuff. I am, yes. <laughs> With your recognition level in the sport, there are people from outside the rodeo world who are certainly aware of you and fans of yours. And uh, David seems to be particularly interested in this picture of you with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity to meet him. I was at an event in Oklahoma City, and he uh, happened to be in the area in Oklahoma shooting just a movie, and um, he came to watch, and I happened to be at the right place at the right time, so that was, that was a pretty cool moment. His daughter um, and he also ride reining horses. He's rode, and he understands kind of the Western life, and um, surprising, there's a lot of people that you wouldn't suspect in, in maybe Hollywood, the love of the horse. Well, I wonder if you've given any thought to the idea of a, of a girl or a boy growing up in Marana and driving down Survey Way or Barrel Racer Road, knowing about you and thinking that one day they might like to follow in your bootsteps. I hope they do. Honestly, this has been a, I couldn't ask to grow up in a better lifestyle. And so, yes, I hope it inspires them to, to seek out maybe, you know, being a barrel racer one day. My guests were four-time world barrel racing champion Sherry Servey and Street Smarts columnist David Layton. His article about the naming of the streets in Servey's honor will be published in next Monday's edition of the Arizona Daily Star. Mike Stark is a journalist and the creative director for the Center for Biological Diversity. He's passionate about ecology, and to write his new book, he had to hike and cave in some pretty remote and inhospitable places. Chasing the Ghost Bear on the trail of America's lost super beast shares Mike Stark's obsession with the now extinct giant short-faced bear. Before our conversation, he'll read an excerpt from the book. No one stumbles across Potter Creek Cave. Tucked into a mountainside high above Shasta Lake in Northern California, it's a hidden place, a hole fit into a limestone hill that's so well concealed by trees and thick bushes that you don't know you've arrived until you're practically on its front doorstep. Inside are narrow, twisting passages, pits, galleries of pale stalactites, slick walls, bats, millipedes, eyeless spiders, and the kind of deep darkness that leaves you disoriented and trying to remember why anyone would ever willingly part with the daylight. It's perfect for secrets. Plenty had come to Potter Creek Cave before me, people and animals alike. 
The chambers and galleries once housed a staggering trove of bones, numbering in the thousands, representing at least 52 species. Animals still extant were well represented in the fragments, including rats, bats, deer, and rattlesnakes. Scattered among the debris and bound by the blackness for thousands of years were also the remains of more than 20 extinct species, exotic and familiar. Camels, horses, giant sloths, ancient bison, direwolves, mammoths, and mastodons. Vestiges all from the Pleistocene, the epoch from roughly 2.6 million years ago to 11,700 years ago, famous for its massive intermittent glaciers that draped over much of North America, and for the oddball assortment of oversized, outlandish creatures that stalked the landscape. Most of the extinct species found in the cave were already known to scientists by the time they were discovered in the late 1800s and early 1900s. One was not. Its discovery in the form of a roughed-up skull missing its lower jaw was the first sign of the biggest flesh-eating mammal ever to walk the continent. The largest of its kind, the males, stood taller than polar bears and the mighty brown bears of Alaska and possessed jaws powerful enough to annihilate skulls and snap bones like dry twigs. On all fours, the biggest stared a six-foot person in the face. On its hind legs, it towered ten feet or more and could reach its front paws up to fifteen feet. It sported claws like knife blades and teeth built for tearing and shredding. Trifling with this bear could certainly come with ugly, often life-ending results. Any Ice Age person lucky enough to survive an encounter would have returned to their family with a story equal parts terror, adrenaline, and awe. No one alive knows today what its roar sounded like, but it's safe to assume it curdled bowels and triggered a flight response like no other. It's no wonder that some have speculated the mere presence of this barely believable bear in the far north may have delayed the arrival of people in the interior of North America for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. Of all the animals that you could have gone chasing, why this bear? Well, these bears were forgotten characters from the Pleistocene. Uh, When we think about this time uh, in the Earth's history, we often think of mammoths and mastodons and the saber-toothed tigers and lions, uh, camels, other species. But this giant short-faced bear has kind of been lost to our memory for a long time. And bears have always been a very special species to me. When I'm out in the wild, when I'm hiking, I've always got my ear out for the crack of a twig that maybe is going to signify a bear in our midst. Or, you know, I love seeing in places like Yellowstone where you can see the, the rump of a bear on a ridge and know that this is you're in their place, you're in their habitat. And so all growing up and in my adult life, Uh, Being in the presence of bears has always been really special to me. What are some of its unique biological adaptations? Well, all bears are incredible. All bears are uh, highly adaptable, incredible improvisers on the landscape where they live. The giant short-faced bear was different than uh, a lot of the bears that we know. Is a little bit more slender, is a little bit more cat-like or even hyena-like in some ways. Um, So it doesn't look like a really big grizzly bear. Um, It doesn't really even look like a polar bear necessarily. And so um, they had longer legs. They had uh, shorter snouts. And so those longer legs allowed them to travel across the landscape farther distances in search of food. I think they had incredible noses like all bears do. 
Um, and so this was really a species that was built for um, long-range travel in search of food, and then when it got to um, wherever it was going to be, finding food it can eat and adapting to the local plants or, or animals. Can you tell us a little about the trip that you took, the places you visited while you were researching this bear? The first place I went, I wanted to see uh, where this bear first showed up um, for people, where the first specimen was found. And so uh, my first trip was to Northern California to Potter Creek Cave. And it was a long rainy day uh, hiking up this um, side of this mountain to get to the cave's entrance. And then um, inside deep into the cave, there was a big dark pit where for thousands of years, animals had been falling into the pit from a hole in the surface and um, spending their last moments there, down there in the dark. Uh, And so among them were giant short-faced bears, and um, that's where the first skull was found in 1879. And I went to Rochester, Indiana. That was where the uh, most complete specimen has ever been found. Um, That was back in 1967 where a gas crew was installing a a valve on a pipeline and were digging around in the muck and suddenly uh, bears emerged from the mud and uh, our bones emerged from the mud. I was going to say you made it sound extremely dramatic. That would be exciting (laughs) if maybe that was the last one still remaining. Um, So that was where a skeleton was found uh, by that utility crew. Um, So that was uh, another place I visited went to Lubbock, Texas. Um, That was uh, important to me because that's where um, one of the few associations between people and giant short-faced bears has been found. So um, at a place called Lubbock Lake, there's um, a museum there. They think there's evidence that a leg bone was found that had been broken by somebody over a rock and used to scrape the hide of a mammoth or a mastodon or some other um, species that had been killed there. And so it's important to me to go to that place to know that the bears had been there, known that humans had been um, interacting uh, with bears in some ways. And also one of my favorite places was the La Brea Tar Pits in downtown Los Angeles, uh, which is just such a um, surreal place to go in the heart of L.A., uh, where there's uh, buses going past and Starbucks and all sorts of human development. And right in the middle is this amazing death pit that operated for 50,000 years where animals kept getting stuck in the goo uh, and dying. And it's become one of the uh, best places to find giant short-faced bear bones. There are a lot of great turns of phrase in your book. Your writing is very short and punchy, and I can't write a description without putting at least two adjectives in there. You, you, you're able to describe things without doing that. It's very impressive to me. But there's a short quote in the book that, that stood out to me, and it's, paleontology is hunting without killing. And the reason I bring it up is because in your career as a naturalist and a journalist, what was it like to go looking for something that you knew you actually weren't going to find? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that, that quote was from uh, Russell Shapiro, uh, who was a paleontologist from California State University, who went with me to the Potter Creek Cave. And I think that's one of the most fascinating thing about reconstructing the past. Um, you know, and one of the things I learned talking to paleontologists and being with them in the field um, and elsewhere is that they are finding scraps and trying to assemble scraps into a story. And that's a lot of what this book ended up being as well, is looking for disparate facts uh, about the giant short-faced bear and trying to understand what the big long-term narrative was for this bear and piecing it together. 
But I did find myself really wishing to encounter this bear the more I got to know about it. And there was um, something of a grieving process, strange as it is to say, that um, that I was on a trail of a, of a bear that no longer existed and trying to look for signs of life from something that was no longer there. And, you know, extinction is like that. We suffer these losses we didn't even know that um, we've lost. And knowing that I was in the place where these bears existed, uh, a blink of an eye ago, really, 10,000, 20,000 years ago in the geological sense was just a fleck of time for us. So I had this sense that I was in close proximity with these bears. Um, they were just here. I felt like I just missed them. I was bummed that uh, I can't see them. And so the next best thing is to try to piece together what their lives were like and who they were. And for me, that was my way of getting as close as I could to them. So coming right off of that, Mike, in one of the reviews of the book, it's referred to as partly a meditation on extinction. Do you think about extinction differently after this experience? Absolutely. I think it's, uh, I take it more personally. I think every extinction is a loss of the great piece of art that this world is. And I think as you take each piece away, this becomes a less vibrant, less alive place to be. Right in the middle of being in the field for this book, um, the United Nations came out with a report that predicted that up to a million species could be gone in the next few decades. You know, the giant short-faced bear was not driven extinct uh, probably by people, but a lot of the species that we talk about now with extinction, a lot of those are preventable. And so for me, these are, you know, these bears became a friend in my life as I was researching and writing this book. And I view um, all the other species out there as friends, whether I know them or not. Um, and so as birds disappear, as frogs disappear, as fish disappear and plants, I feel like all of these are personal losses for me. And once you start experiencing extinction like that, it becomes pretty profound and you do feel yourself really going through a grieving process. Mike Stark is the author of Chasing the Ghost Bear on the Trail of America's Lost Super Beast, published by University of Nebraska Press. Last year, a new show debuted on the FX network and Hulu that quickly gained a worldwide fan base. Reservation Dogs features dramatic and comedic stories about four teenage friends living on a reservation in Oklahoma. The show is made by an almost entirely indigenous North American crew of writers, directors, and performers. Joining them on this enormously successful creative journey is my next guest, Tucson actor John Proudstar. Well, I worked with Sterling Harjo, the showrunner and creator, one of the creators on at least three films, uh, low-budget films that ended up going to Sundance. They just kind of floundered uh, in the industry for some weird reason. They were great films, if you ever get a chance to check them out. Good Night, Irene, uh, Barking Water, and Four Sheets to the Wind. Sterling, you know, his story, he was ready to give up. He, he just wasn't making a living, and, you know, his stuff wasn't sticking. And then I read online that him and Taika got this deal. And so I texted him. I said, hey, congratulations, man. And, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do for your project. And long story short, he was very interested in me for this part, uh, the part of Big, the cop. And I had to audition and go through the strenuous uh, auditioning process. 
And finally, when it was all over and done with, they had offered me the role. And, uh, you know, a few days before I was supposed to fly out, Disney had called and said, hey, we need you to take a COVID test before you fly out. And I went and did it. And I really didn't have any worries because I was, there was nothing wrong. You know, like I wasn't even sniffling or anything. But uh, I tested positive for COVID. And my whole world just started to like, I go, I'm like, I can't believe this, man. And uh, both Taika and Sterling tried to reschedule stuff. They were talking to Disney. They were really, you know, trying to get me on the project. And at the end of the day, Disney was like, nope, got to recast them. And they did. And, you know, Sterling called me and apologized. And he said, hey, brother, if, if we get picked up for a series, you're going to be in it. Don't worry. And, and what did you think the likelihood of that was at that moment? You know, I know Hollywood. And if success comes, sometimes you don't have that option. You know, and I, I thought they may not give him that option. They may say, hey, we're going to cast your little TV series with people that we like, not these unknowns that you've gathered. I mean, it was just a huge blow to me. And it was, it really affected me for a couple of days. And then finally I said, okay, I can't, I can't let this be the thing that represents me. And so I called Sterling and I asked who had gotten the part and they gave it to an actor named Zahn McLaren. And I had known Zahn for years, like since the early nineties. So I called him and I congratulated him and he felt a little bad. And I said, no, man, I, you know, I said, I'm honored that it was you. You're a really talented guy. So that, that speaks volumes for, for me as an actor that they came and got you, um, you know, to get the part. So, you know, I wanted something positive to come out of it. That's a great approach to do it because a lot of people would have felt very burned by that. But then what was the next step? How did the story um, come to a happier ending? And the pilot did really well. They loved it. They got picked up for series. And then I got the call. Sterling called and said, hey, you know, we've got a couple of roles we're looking at you for. And then finally, I was slowly settling into the dad role. I was even worse than auditioning for Big. They were really concerned because there was a whole episode, uh, as we now know, called Hunting. That was just my character and Willie Jack, the little girl. And it was just a different paced part of the series. So that was the big one that everyone was worried about. And they were like, well, whoever we cast is the dad. He's got to be able to act. You know, these two characters have to hold the whole show on their shoulders. We had all known that the series would do well with Native people. What we didn't know was the rest of the world. We didn't know if they would like it or get it or Taika and Sterling and the writers. They didn't slow down for anyone. They didn't stop to explain stuff to you. And I thought that was really wise of them to just jump in and say, hey, climb on board and, you know, we'll explain things as we go along as much as we can. <laughs> Having worked on as many film sets as you have done in your career, what would you say is outstanding about the Reservation Dogs community and the, the way that a room full of indigenous writers are sharing their life experiences with directors who lived it as well, and then featuring these young performers who are living it now. You know what? I mean, I thought a lot about this, about the uniqueness of this and, you know, where it came from. And, you know, Sterling had mentioned that FX really rolled the red carpet out for them and gave them the freedom and trusted Sterling and Taika that they were going to, you know, tell a good story and pick good individuals and 
you know, to see such a large native population. When I walked onto the set, I got a little choked up. And there's other native actors on there that I've known throughout the years that we were just kind of looking at each other in awe, like, like we had survived, like we had crossed this desert and we made it to the oasis and here we were. And there's young native people as crew members and all the writers were natives and, you know, Starlin and, you know, it just kept going and going because it was just a dream. It was a concept in all our minds that one day we'd be able to get to do this. So again, kudos to FX for being so courageous and trustworthy to Sterling and uh, Taika. All right, let's start with Leon. What do you think, John, you brought to that role that came from your own lived experience? Uh, well, I was a single father. I got custody of my daughter when she was five, and I predominantly raised her on my own, you know, with the help of her mother's family members. And it was terrifying because <laughs> I was like 28 or 29 and I'm, I'm a dude, you know, I was a bouncer and, you know, I, I was like the last guy you would want to be raising a little girl. I was thrown in the water to see if I could swim man, and I had to learn how to polish nails, pluck eyebrows. I had to learn how to do all that mom stuff or at least the stuff that we designated as mom stuff. And yeah, some of it was hard. And yeah. some of it was heartwarming. Even in our worst moments, we now have that, she and I. You know, those are times, those were hard times for both of us, but now we laugh about it and it's a tender moment. And I ended up working with survivors of child molestation, uh, predominantly young females, because of, you know, my experience of being a single father. Um, so I brought all that to the table for this dad character. Do you think that your daughter is proud of you for what you've accomplished and for being on Reservation Dogs? Oh, my God. Yeah, definitely. Because she's been with me literally through the struggle of trying to make it in the film business. I, I used to have to take her on to movie sets because I couldn't find a sitter and it just wasn't convenient and, or I didn't want to be away from her for long periods of time. So I, I was like, I would call the directors and producers and say, hey, man, my daughter's coming with me. So... <laughs> We're going to have to just deal with it. <laughs> and, you know, she had to experience all that with me. So for this to happen and for her to witness, you know, all this cool stuff, it's been great. I mean, she's she's getting such a kick out of it. You know, my grandchildren are watching. You know, they don't call Reservation Dogs Reservation Dogs. They call it Tata Show. I mean, what else could I ask for? You know, my grandkids are watching me in the moment. And they're always going to remember that. And now I've created a pathway that says, hey, you know, if you want to do something, go out there and do it. And you're going to, you might have to struggle, but you can do it. My guest was actor, director, and writer John Proudstar. Season two of Reservation Dogs is available on Hulu on Wednesday, August 3rd. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.